I uh, think it is safe to say that just about all of us have had times where we think we would like to know what's coming down the road. We would like to, wouldn't you, sometimes have you ever thought, if I only knew what was going to happen in the future, then I could prepare. But when you glance back at some of the things that you have been through in life, I think you're like me, glad that God created us finite because I don't know how I would have managed knowing some of the things I was going to face until I faced them. And I think sometimes if we had that glimpse in the future, we would all walk around kind of like this grimace on our face, like wincing, waiting for that to come, the the inevitable to come. And, And that's not a good look. Knowing what's coming for some of us would be hard. I think knowing what's coming for all of us would be hard. But Jesus knew. The Bible tells us that Jesus knew His time had come. Coming into Jerusalem on that day, riding into Jerusalem on that donkey, fulfilling the prophet Zechariah, behold, your king comes gentle and riding on a donkey, uh, (coughs) allowing himself to be celebrated, allowing himself to be hailed as the king, allowing them to shout those words from the Psalms, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, Hosanna, a word that means he saves, was Jesus acting strategically because he knew his time had come. He knew what was ahead. He did not shy away from the inevitable. You've often heard me say that this one week in Jesus' life, from what we call Palm Sunday to Easter Sunday, that one week in Jesus' life, when you add it all up, gets more time, more space, more attention in the four Gospels than any other event, than any other time frame in his life. It is that significance. And, and sometimes, I know myself growing up and, and growing up in, in church, you know, I remember Palm Sundays, and then for our church, it was then Easter Sunday. We didn't do anything in between. That was for those other people. We did Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday. And, and, and I'm kind of sad about that. I, I'm kind of glad that we do a few things here uh, between, because it's such a significant time. It's time to not just neglect uh, sometimes we made a brief, well, our church never did, but some churches will make a brief stop on Monday, Thursday, and, and then another stop on Good Friday, but we got to get to Easter Sunday. And I want to slow down today, and I want to look a little bit about that week, that week between when he rode in and then when he was resurrected. And so we're going to look at three encounters that happened in that week between Palm Sunday and Easter. Now, I will grant you two of those encounters with Jesus are very indirect. And yet from those three encounters that we're going to see, we're going to learn some very significant lessons. There are two things that connect the three people that we're going to talk about. Two things that put them all on the same plane. The first one is this. 
each one, in one way, shape, or form, was ignored by the prevailing culture. Were it not for Jesus, the three people we're going to talk about today would not even be a footnote in history. But the second thing, and I think even the more significant thing, they were each in some way noticed by Jesus. And that's why we can learn from these encounters. But I want to do something here this morning. I want you, this is, this is really dangerous for a pastor to do. I want you to close your eyes for a moment. I want you just to close your eyes and I want you to be just kind of in that point of being individual. And I want you to hear these words that I'm going to say right now. Jesus notices you. You are not invisible to Jesus. Jesus sees you. I want you to open your eyes and let's I want you to say that right after me. We're going to personalize it. Repeat after me. Jesus sees me. Jesus sees me. That's so important to remember because I think sometimes we feel invisible. Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to the Gospel of Luke. It's the third Gospel in your New Testament, chapter 21. In the opening verses of chapter 21, we're introduced to our first character. Let me read these verses. As Jesus looked up, 21.1, as Jesus looked up, he saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. Truly I tell you, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. She was hoping to be invisible. I imagine that she quietly moved through the crowded temple, and the temple was crowded. It was jammed with people. And it smelled, because even after Jesus had turned the tables over, they just turned them back over, and they kept selling sacrifices, selling lambs and goats to people that, that, the, that had been pre-approved so that they could make money off of those coming to worship. I imagine her in her robe with her, her shawl pulled over her head, eyes downcast, moving through the shadows, not wanting to be noticed because being noticed was not on her to-do list on that day. It was Passover time. It was time for the extremely religious to show off their devotion. And it was time for the extremely wealthy to show their controlled generosity. And it was that day 
that Jesus and his disciples came in. And Jesus took a place to sit. I, I kind of wonder. I, 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 get, I think Jesus was a people watcher. I think he, he, he created us. It was kind of like he, he liked to sit back and watch how we operate. And so there was the temple treasury, the place where the money went. It was, it was along a wall, from what we understand from archaeology. And they called the receptacles trumpets because they actually looked like the bell of a trumpet. And you would come and you would pour your uh, money, whatever you had, you would put it into the trumpet. It was a receptacle that went back into the treasury behind the wall. Jesus took a place there with his disciples. He just sat and he watched. He watched the wealthy come. And he watched them open up their bag full of gold or silver. And he watched as they dumped it in and, and made sure they dumped it in so that it really made some noise. Look at me. I'm generous. I wonder how long she waited. I wonder how long she stood off in the corner just waiting for an opening, just an opportunity to walk in, give her offering, worship God, and leave. We don't know how long it was. Luke doesn't give us that time frame. But you can imagine, can't you? As she stood there in the corner and there's maybe a lull in the wealthy. And finally she goes over, eyes still downcast, with a little pouch drawn up by two leather strings. She opens the pouch. And, and maybe for a moment she quietly prays and thanks God for his provision, for his care for her. Luke tells us she was a widow, and we know that if she was a widow coming alone, that she had no inheritance, no means of income, no family to take care of her. She was totally alone, and she takes out two coins. The closest we would have is two pennies. She quietly drops them in. I, I, I imagine she reached in and put them in so they wouldn't make noise, and she stood for a second and thanked God, and then she walked off no one noticed her except Jesus Jesus sees you Jesus sees me and Jesus makes a stunning evaluation one that would have blown the minds of his followers Jesus says she gave more than all the others how can that be? How can that be? Jesus, did you see her? She has nothing. How could that be? But Jesus goes on. They gave out of their wealth. Let me put it another way. They gave out of their abundance. The, the word I used earlier was controlled generosity. They gave enough to look good, but not enough to make a sacrifice. You think about that. They gave enough to look good, but not enough to be a sacrifice. Controlled generosity. Their gift was significant in human terms, but they didn't feel it. 
It was discretionary money. Oh, we'll give this to God. We can afford that. There was no sense of dependency. She gave all she had to live on, and in so doing, she put herself squarely on the shoulders of God. I want to leave you with a a lesson here for this one, and I'm going to use this kind of framework for all three of them. It is not original with me. It comes from the NIV application commentary on Luke, written by Dr. Daryl Bach. And in this statement, he said this, and when I read it some time ago, it has always stuck with me. He says this, God does not see things as we do. He does not count. He weighs. God does not count. He weighs. Let me explain my understanding of that phrase. We count. We measure. We add up. We look at the amount one gives and we say, they're a good giver. We look at the car someone drives and we say, they are successful. We look at the house someone has and we say, they have it going on. We look at the degrees behind somebody's name and we say, they are educated and I want to read their books. We count. We count how many people are in a given meeting. We count budgets. We count buildings. We count. God doesn't count. God's not impressed by our materialism. God is not impressed by our academics. God is impressed, is not impressed by the things that impress us. Remember those words that Samuel said all the way back in 1 Samuel 16, I think when he's choosing David, and he sees David's brother Eliab come. And he is big and tall and he's muscular and he's built. He's a warrior. And Samuel says, surely that's the Lord that's anointed. And God says, no, no. I don't see things the way you do, Samuel. You look on the outside. I look at the inside. God doesn't count. He's not impressed by the stuff that, that we are impressed with. It's, he doesn't count the things we count. God weighs. What's the difference? Well, God weighs our heart. God weighs our motives. He weighs our empathy and our compassion. He weighs how we treat the most vulnerable in our midst. He weighs how we treat one another. He weighs how we talk about people when they're not around. He weighs how we use the money we choose to keep. I think that's one we don't think about. Somebody asked me once, what do you think about tithing? I said, well, 10% is just a good starting point. See, the real question is not how much do I have to give. The real question is how much do I need to keep? Because maybe... God wants more than 10%. And maybe God knows you can only afford 5%. God doesn't count like we count. He weighs, what's your heart? Is it a heart of generosity? God weighs how we act when we're just with our family. 
God weighs those things and many more. We tend to count the externals. God weighs the heart. This poor widow gave us our first lesson. God does not count. He weighs. The week goes on. Lots of teaching, lots of back and forth in the week. On most likely Thursday night of the week, if we're using our words, Jesus gathers with his disciple in an upper room. He washes their feet, showing them what servanthood looks like. He institutes what we call communion that night as they go through the Passover Seder. And then sometime late Thursday night or very early Friday morning, in the wee small hours, Jesus is arrested. And it is a whirlwind of accusations and abuse and trials and more abuse leading up to the crucifixion. Our next two characters come from chapter 23 of the book of Luke. Luke's gospel tells us that three times, three times Pilate declares Jesus is innocent. In Luke 23, 4, 14, and 22, Pilate says, I find no basis of charge against this man. He's innocent. And in, that, in all of that, Luke uh, tells us, and I think Matthew goes into it more, Pilate sends him off to Herod. And, uh, okay, don't judge. But Herod's solo in Jesus Christ Superstar is kind of one of my favorites. So you are the Christ, the great Jesus Christ. Walk across my swimming pool. Uh, Herod wanted to see a miracle. And Jesus is done with miracles. He's not doing any miracles right now. He refuses to be put into a corner. And Herod sends him back after having his soldiers beat him up a little bit and says, he's innocent. But the religious leaders had stirred up the crowd. Now, sometimes we may wonder, how could they have been cheering on Palm Sunday and, and then starting to yell, crucify him? I kind of side with those who say the crowds on Palm Sunday were the crowds from Galilee who had seen so many things that Jesus had done. They were there for the feeding of the 5,000. They had seen different things. They had seen people healed, etc. And they're the ones cheering. The people in Jerusalem hadn't seen that much. Jesus didn't do a whole lot of miracles in Jerusalem that we have recorded in Scripture. A couple at the Pool of Bethesda, a man and another a man born blind. But otherwise... So they see him as a rabble-rouser. They believe the religious leaders saying, this man is trouble and he is going to get the Romans to come and to just wipe us out. We need to, we need to remove him. And so he, they get them stirred up. Pilate's greatest fear was that there would be an uprising in Jerusalem. See, Israel was where Roman leaders went to fail. And Pilate didn't want to fail. He wanted to keep the peace. So one of the things that he had instituted some years before was, every year on Passover, I'll release a prisoner. And that way you'll see that I'm a good guy. So it was his custom to do that. 
And so he no doubt had heard reports, if not even the shouts of Hosanna the days before. And, and, and so he thought, how can, I, how can I stop this uprising and placate everybody at the same time? Pilate didn't read the room. And he said, I'll release Jesus. He's your king. I'll release him to you. And the crowd shouted, absolutely not. No, crucify him. And we pick it up in verse 13 of chapter 23. Pilate called the chief priests and the rulers of the people together and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I've examined him in your presence and, found, and have found no basis for your charges with him. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us. As you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and release him. The whole crowd shouted, Away with this man! Release Barabbas to us! Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again, but they kept shouting, Crucify him! Crucify him! For the third time he spoke to them, Why? What crime has this man committed? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him punished and then release him. But with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified, and their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, and the one they asked for, and surrendered Jesus to their will. The people shouted for Barabbas. We only have Barabbas' name mentioned a couple times in Scripture. Nobody ever really talks about Barabbas. We don't know much about Barabbas. We really don't even have a lot of what they would call tradition or extra-biblical literature to tell us what happened to Barabbas. You know, did he change? We don't know. We know that, as Luke says here, he was in prison. He had already been convicted, tried and convicted of insurrection and murder. He was there serving out his time because he had done the crime. Maybe he was some kind of freedom fighter. But Pilate releases him. Barabbas, the guilty, had his life exchanged for Jesus, the innocent. I am Barabbas. You are Barabbas. In God's eyes, we are guilty and worthy of punishment. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We've missed the mark. We are Barabbas. And we are guilty. And here's Jesus, the one who four times is declared innocent. The one that we know is innocent. And what happens he doesn't even protest the exchanging of his life for Barabbas, the declared guilty one. The great exchange 
is this word picture for what Christ does for all of humanity. Jesus, the epitome of innocence, taking on the guilt of the world. The innocent Lamb of God dying for humanity. We've already seen in our study in Romans, Romans 5.8, but God demonstrated His love in this. While we were still sinners, while we were Barabbas, Christ died for us. See, God does not count. He exchanges. God doesn't count. He exchanges. God exchanged the life of Christ so that you and I could come into faith relationship with Him. We count. They're guilty. They deserve it. We count. They need to serve out their time. We count. God doesn't count. He exchanges. Just hours later, in the mid to late morning, Jesus is crucified. Crucifixion is one of the most heinous forms of capital punishment ever devised by humanity. Crucifixion is death by slow suffocation. That's why in the book of John you read that the the Pharisees wanted to kind of hasten to death and they broke the legs of the, the two criminals because when you're crucified and you're splayed out like this, your, your legs are just a little bit bent because you, you breathe not now for your lungs because you have no lung power. You have to push up to get it, to get some air and then come down to exhale. And it's slow, torturous, painful death. Luke tells us in chapter 23, verse 32, that there are two other criminals that were led out to be executed with Jesus. The, the language is such that their, their crimes are similar to Barabbas. Probably Barabbas was destined for cru crucifixion. And we're told in other Gospels that initially they are just hurling insults at Jesus like everybody else is on the ground. And in the midst of their hurling insults, one of the men has a moment. A moment where he kind of steps back. A moment of realization. And, and, and maybe he had that moment because in verse 34 we read of Luke 23, Jesus said, and the language is such that I could actually translate it, Jesus repeatedly said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they were doing. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And don't hear that in a voice like mine at this moment. It was a voice that was racked with pain. It was a voice that was racked with exhaustion. And repeatedly Jesus is saying, Father, forgive them. And maybe it's that. Maybe it's that. Maybe it's because at the foot of the cross where Jesus was, we know that John was there. We know that his mother was there. And there were a couple others, and, and, and you know, they were weeping. They weren't hurling insults. And, and maybe he looked at that, and he saw that, wow, he has people here that cared about him. Nobody cares about me. 
I'm alone. Nobody sees me. I'm alone. But he has people that cared about him. Maybe he heard Jesus in his moment of agony look down and say to John, Behold your mother. And to Mary, behold your son. And maybe that blew this man's mind saying, wow, he is taking care of affairs and putting people first in the midst of his agony. We don't know. We do know that there was so much going on and finally, finally keenly aware of his own guilt, more and more aware of the innocence of Jesus, he turns to Jesus. First, he turns to his friend and he says, Don't you fear God, verse 40? Don't you fear God since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, Truly I tell you, Today you will be with me in paradise. God does not count. He gives grace. God does not count. He gives grace. Jesus grants his request. What an overwhelming display of grace. This guy... Jesus didn't tell him, okay, first, before this is going to happen, you need to follow these rules right here. No, he doesn't say, okay, first, before this happens, here's a little gospel tract. I want you to read the prayer on the back of this tract. If you say that prayer, no. Jesus doesn't say, okay, first, this ain't going to happen because you can't be baptized, so I'm sorry, you're kind of out of luck. No, there was no rules, no prayers, no baptism, no communion, no church attendance, uh, no verses memorized, no being told you got to leave your family and follow me. A simple answer to a raw request of faith. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. An acknowledgement of the person of Jesus received the grace of Jesus. The other day, a friend of mine posted this on Facebook, and I, I, I made the mistake of looking at it thinking, oh, I wish I would have said that. Uh, it was a little video clip from Pastor Alistair Begg. And I will not. He's from Scotland, so... Don't even think of me going that way. But uh, it was entitled, The Man on the Middle Cross. And, and he looks at that scene as one might imagine. And then he takes it to another plane. He goes, imagine the scene in heaven. When the legs of this thief are broken and he walks up then in heaven and he walks up to the pearly gates. Now Peter is still on earth, so Peter's not there right now. So there's an angel there, right? And the angel says, why are you here? And the man says, I don't know. Okay, well, did you, did you say a prayer? No, I didn't know what pray to, prayer to pray. Well, uh, tell us about your church attendance. I've never been to church. 
Were you baptized? What's that? Wait a minute. Why are you here? I don't know. Okay, I got to get my supervisor. So he goes, he brings his supervisor, and the supervisor says, okay, let's look at some other things. What do you believe about the doctrine of Scripture? What's that? Well, okay, what do you think about the doctrine of sanctification? I don't know. What, don't know what you're talking about. So why are you here? And he says, I'm here because the man on the middle cross told me I could come. God doesn't count. He gives grace. You and I come to him. Why? Not because of all the stuff we've done, and there's nothing wrong with stuff. I'm all about memorizing scripture. I'm all about being here and, and, and coming together for church so we can encourage one another. I'm all about that. I believe you ought to be reading your Bible. All of that is so important. I'm all about being baptized after you come to faith in Christ. I'm all about receiving Christ as your Savior, believing He died on the cross for your sins. But if I make all of that more important than Jesus, then I have erred. It's about Jesus. God doesn't count. He gives grace. And the only reason we can approach God is because the man on the middle cross said we could if we believed in him. You and I are these three people. Spiritually, we come to our God as impoverished as the widow. We are as guilty as Barabbas. We are as undeserving as the thief on the cross. But as we celebrate Jesus, King Jesus, on this Palm Sunday, we miss it if we don't look at the cross and see him as Savior. This week leads up to the ultimate price. The rich who became poor, the innocent who died for the guilty, the righteous who showed grace to the unrighteous. God does not count our sins against us when we put our faith in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins that we might have life. God does not count. He weighs he exchanges, and he gives grace. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for, thank you for just being able to look at, at people and see how amazing it is that you work through us, with us, in us. Thank you, Lord. We, we come to you today and we ask that you will remind us that you see us, that you weigh our motives, that you exchange our guilt for your innocence, that you give us grace that we don't deserve. We celebrate you today in Jesus' name, amen.